0: Learn how to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: Everything I ever learned, I learned from the movies. Audrey Hepburn said that. And you know what? I think a lot of people these days can say, everything I learned about veganism, or at least all the first things I learned about veganism... I learned from a movie. I'm Victoria Moran, and I'm host of the Main Street Vegan Podcast. So happy to have you with us today. And one of the other hats that I'm wearing these days is as producer of a beautiful new documentary called A Prayer for Compassion, which opened last week in New York City to a sold-out house. And we picked the big theater at the SVA Cinema in Chelsea. And we kind of went out on a limb, our events manager, Carly Hirsch, and I, when we said, no, we don't want your little theater. We want the one that seats 500. And then we went through lots of nervousness wondering if it would fill. Well, it filled and it overfilled. So we are going to be doing another screening April 18th at the big AMC theater in uh, Times Square. So exciting. So exciting. So if you're in this area, uh, please keep an eye out for that. Mark your calendar for April 18th. You can find information at a aprayerforcompassion.com and also on my website, mainstreetvegan.net, and just click on A Prayer for Compassion. Now, the reason for all of this movie intro for today's show is that both of our wonderful guests today appear in the film. The film is about spirituality And it's about living a vegan lifestyle. Those happen to be my two passions. And I have a sense, if you are listening to Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio, that you are passionate about one or the other. And they dovetail so beautifully. So after the break, we're going to be speaking with Jeffrey Cohan, who is executive director of Jewish Veg. And right now, it is my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce Linda G. Fisher. Linda is a member of the Ojibwe Nation. She is a Native American. She is a noted artist. She's been vegan most of her adult life. She's also an animal advocate with a specialty in parrot advocacy in the exotic bird trade. She's also an animal behavior consultant and animal communicator. And coming to us today from the beautiful location of Petaluma, California, welcome Linda Fisher.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: It's wonderful to hear you. As I was telling you earlier, I've seen the film so many times, and I've seen your wonderful part in the film many times, so I feel as if I know you, and everything that, that you say there resonates with me so deeply. So tell us just a little bit first, introduce yourself, and uh, let us know about your life and about your transition to being vegan at such an early age.
2: Oh, gosh. Um I you know you've said you've pretty much summed everything up but uh I think from I always knew that I was somehow different I wasn't raised vegetarian or vegan at all um but somehow intuitively um I just didn't feel that something was right and um it wasn't until many years later though when I was a young adult that I started uh real you know when the word vegetarian uh came into play i I really never heard the word growing up so um and things you know it just changed slowly and i just finally realized that you know because i've always been involved in animal advocacy and i just couldn't place I, i couldn't find it was a disconnect if i could eat an animal and then um and then advocate for them there was you know, I just couldn't find how that was going to work. So I started evaluating that and, you know, just through the years and finally made the transition. Um, so, yeah, it it wasn't that difficult because I think that when you're um, really passionate about what you're doing, and for me it was being a voice for animals and birds and um you know, it, it wasn't that hard for me. I know it's, it's difficult for some, and I can understand that. But for me, it was a pretty easy transition, and I've never, you know, missed uh, not eating meat.
1: Yes. So you are a Native American, and that was one of the things that uh, Thomas Jackson, the filmmaker, focused on most in talking with you in A Prayer for Compassion. And we all hear... Well, I do what the Native Americans do. I eat the meat and then I bless the soul of the animal. I personally have a hard time with this, especially when I hear it from non-Native Americans, which I think are the only people from whom I've ever heard it. So could you please address this thing that comes up so often?
2: Well, I, I, I feel the same as you do. I, you know, it's, it's, it really doesn't have a lot of meaning, in my opinion, when I hear somebody say that when they've gone to the grocery store and, and uh, purchased the meat. Now, there are families uh, who do survive off of hunting and, and you know, the meat, and, and that's part of their survival. I know that my grandparents um, live that way. And so it's, you know, it, it, I think for those situations it makes Sense, because I I am a spiritual person. I do believe in in uh, in having a gratitude attitude about life and the goodness that you receive. Um, but I don't feel that it's quite the same when you go to the market and you participate in factory farming.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Now, in the film, you make a statement that you think that if the great chiefs were alive today, they probably wouldn't even be hunting. Can you expand on that a bit well i i'm
2: it's hard to really explain i just I feel that there was a deeper connection with all life on the on the planet uh, with a lot of indigenous cultures and I think more would it, it would be more that they would be appalled at, at any type of factory farming. It, it, <clears throat> it doesn't fall into, the, into their spiritual belief system, and, so, uh, and that's where the giving thanks comes from.:
1: Yes, uh, because
2: so, it, it, so their belief was that they were equal, and they were the hunted as well, and so everything was equal. I see. So, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: And... No, I'm just I'm so fascinated. So, for those of us who don't really know about Native American spirituality, and I would suppose it differs some from tribe to tribe, but from your tradition and your experience, just explain to us who may be members of other religions or of no religion at all what is the Native American spiritual tradition? Oh,
2: gosh. You know, I think, well, I can't really answer it. It's probably a little different for everybody. But for myself, I know that I traveled a lot and looked for that perfect religion. (coughs) I went everywhere, Uh, uh, just traveled and studied Buddhism, studied Hinduism, um, Christianity. And I love going to all different churches because to me they're all beautiful. But I still hadn't found the right place for myself and I, when I was growing up, um, and my mother used to tell me stories and share spirituality uh, myths and stories and the beauty of the Native American spirituality, and I wouldn't listen. I, I just didn't like, it just didn't make any difference to me. I didn't like the fact that they were killing animals and wearing hides and so on. And so I just sort of dismissed it. But then after searching, I ended up coming back to my Native American heritage and realized that that, it, for me, was my true religion. And the reason is it's just the most connected to nature, the, the deepest sense of spirituality, in my opinion, to the animals and to nature and to the trees and to the beauty of this planet. Um, so I, I guess for me that's how I would sum it up. Um, and uh, and, uh, and so I did. That answer your question? I'm not sure if I completely answered it or not. Oh,
1: it, it's a beautiful, beautiful answer. You remind me of something that I learned in college. I majored in comparative religions, and I remember that one of my professors said that you can sum up all the religions of the world as finding the the divine in one of three places. So in the the religions of the book, the Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the divine is found in history. And in the Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, the divine is found within. And in Native American spirituality and a lot of the indigenous spirituality, the nature religions, even the old European nature religions, the divine is found in nature. And I think for mystics, it's found in all those places, and yeah. and to have one that suits you with an openness of all the others is just so rich and beautiful.
2: Right, and um, and of course now I ask my mother, <laughs> you know, when she talks about growing up and the spirituality and and living on the reservation. Um, You know, now I listen, I pay attention, because it's, you know, I realized that that was, for me, where my true spirituality
1: was. That's lovely. It's amazing how much smarter mom gets the older we get. (laughs) So tell us, Linda, about parrots. I was so surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised because I noticed in A Prayer for Compassion when Thomas photographed a uh, film, some of your artwork, there were a lot of parrots there. But I've never met a parrot advocate before. Why oh. parrots? Oh, gosh. Um, I was. At, I actually
2: founded the first parrot protection organization in the world, <laughs> clear back in 1989. Um. And that's because, in my opinion, parrots are the most misunderstood uh species that we keep as pets, and um sadly, it's a tragic the exotic bird trade, and what the selling of these animals entails is is very tragic and and heartbreaking and because parrots was, have such a long lifespan and even a small parrot can live up to 45 years, Um, they're handed down and, or, you know, and they're wild creatures. They don't have the um, genetic long-term makeup that dogs and cats have, and uh, so you're getting a, even though you've got a hand-fed baby, which is not a good thing, um, it's going to, potentially become wild if it's not handled properly and it's not uh, treated well or it's in it unintentionally mishandled, um, they can start biting, and they have other habits that wild birds have, and uh, then they're passed on. And it's estimated that most parrots are in at least at least seven homes before they, um, they die or live a long, enduring, caged life. So I started advocating for them and advocating for adoption and rescue rather than breeding and buying.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. I've never known a parrot. I have met a few parrots, and they are remarkable. But as I told you when we had our little pre-call, I live with a handicapped pigeon, and I just feel as if I have been given a view into another world. There's something about befriending really any animal that's so wonderful, but we usually befriend other mammals who are very much like us. And birds are very different and really wonderful. I just read a little tweet this morning. Somebody had posted, God loved birds and created trees. Man loved birds and created cages. And since my pigeon is handicapped and we do have a dog and and the bird does have a lot of time in the cage, he gets out every day. But to just make that environment rich and and what he wants for his environment, not what I think he ought to want. So the most recent thing is he nests because in that pigeon dove family, the males also nest. And it's such a mess. I mean, my, my cleaning tasks have doubled since we realized that he really needs to nest. But, okay, <laughs> right. that's what he needs. And uh, he's being kind enough to live in my world.
2: Right. And, you know, I think people don't realize that when they go out and buy a parrot, that especially a large macaw, or bird of that size, which can live to be 80 years easily, um, if it's fed and treated well um but they have no idea usually they have no idea what they're getting into the 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 screaming they you know in nature parrots vocalize in the mornings and in the early evenings before the sun goes down they communicate with each other hundreds of miles well maybe not hundreds but many miles apart from each other and um and so, and they are messy. They they're a lot of work. They're more work. You know, one taking care of one bird is like having three dogs. It's it's a lot of work, and um, it's a huge responsibility to keep them happy. And they're expensive to maintain. The veterinary care you, you, they need to see avian veterinarians, not just a regular vet. Um, they need enrichment, uh, professionally designed enrichment toys and foraging toys and everything to try to compensate in the best way possible to uh, mimic that natural environment where they would have been flying uh up in trees and communicating with each other and they love and they, they chew that's what those beaks were made for for chewing and and uh, cracking nuts and and so they do you know make a lot of mess, and you got to clean up. So a lot of people just don't realize what they're getting into, and um, that's why most of the rescue organizations around the country are filled to the max and struggling to, to maintain all the, you know, birds that people realize it just wasn't a right decision.
1: It's really sad, and I think that particularly when people get involved in the buying and selling of animals, which breaks my heart. That's the definition of slavery. I think it's wonderful when we can adopt and share our lives with other beings, but to turn it into a commercial operation bothers me a lot. But it just seems like this is not People are not informed, I mean, even things like this idea of the micro pig, which my understanding is there is no such thing as a micro pig. there is an infant pig, <laughs> but once you get past a month or two, that is not micro, and yet these these myths are perpetrated so that people will spend their money buying other creatures
2: well, I think too, you know I mean there's this discussion about well, there are good breeders and bad breeders, but I'm trying to understand the mindset of the quote-unquote good breeder, how they can have an innocent, vulnerable being, and then someone comes along that seems to be nice, that they think is nice. They say, oh, well, I I don't sell my animals to the people I don't like or something like that, but you really don't know.
1: No, and as long as there are animals and birds of every species who have been domesticated who can't live outside and they don't have homes and many of them are put to death as we know to Mm. to breed more of them is unconscionable to me and i understand that one of our great challenges as vegans as people who care about animals is that we need to learn to listen to people who see things differently and communicate with them without judgment and I have to say, that's a tall order sometimes.
2: Yeah, especially when you, you know, it's not a, I hear often, well, it's, <clears throat> that's just their opinion, but it's not an opinion any more than it would be an opinion if we saw a child being abused and did nothing. Um, so I think it is important for us to reevaluate. And in my opinion, um, we as humans haven't earned the. The, the privilege to have to be breeding animals and have them um, <clears throat> as pets um, because we've abused the, the 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 privilege to do so just by the fact that we're killing <clears throat> millions of animals every year in shelters <clears throat>
1: so true now, Linda, you are also an animal communicator, and I have had experiences with animal communicators, some of them have been quite remarkable. Now, I know that not everybody is open to um, human attributes that go beyond the five senses. Some people are, I tend to be one who is. So as someone who is rather in awe of this ability that you have, explain to our listeners who are, you know, more skeptical kind of what this is about, and then also let us know what you've heard. What have you heard from parrots? What have you heard from other animals? If they are indeed talking to you, and we're going to assume for argument's sake that they are indeed doing just that, what are they saying? Um,
2: well, first let me clarify. I am, I've am i always been a deeply spiritual-believing person, and um, so I'm I'm not a skeptic in that regard, but I have been a skeptic with animal communicators. Um, and one of the reasons that I started coming, quote-unquote, out of the closet about my animal communication work is because um, I got very concerned about what I was hearing and seeing people people say, you know, these animal communicators were saying that animals were saying. Um, and I knew that, at least in my opinion, I didn't believe that that's what they were really feeling or saying. For example, one woman said she swam with the dolphins, and the dolphins told her that uh, they wanted peace on Earth. Well, in my opinion and what I understand and what I sense about animals and what they're talking to me about is 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 different. Animals don't see the world the way we see the world. We're far more sophisticated. their Animals are far more sophisticated far more advanced than we are as humans and they don't see the world, they're not going to tell you to go read a book that you have on your shelf because you need to grow as an individual. Um, so the work that I do is very, very different. I'm not like most or any other animal communicator that I've ever heard of. Um, the, there's a deeper connection um, that I have in my you know, experience where animals aren't Communicate. It's it's not an anthropomorphic um, discussion. It's a very deep, integral, uh, natural sense of communication, and it's very difficult to put that in words. But um, for example, um, a woman contacted me and was concerned about her dog who was reaching a, a point health-wise where euthanasia might be, a consideration, and she wasn't sure what to do, which is a common problem for a lot of us who care and have loved an animal, and it's time to say goodbye. Um, and in this one woman's particular situation, I was able to comfort her and let her know that her dog was feeling a sense of they know, they understand this this process. Um, oftentimes they don't want to leave because they don't want to disappoint us, or they don't want to leave us. But they understand the evolving process, and they understand when the body is starting to decline and that they need to let go, or if they need to fight and stay alive and get well again. Um, but it is very complicated. The only thing I can say is I'm not, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of things that I hear and hear people say and um, Quite a long discussion, and I, and not to, to, you know, I think the the animal communicators that I've heard that I disagree with, you know, I think their heart is in the right place. I think their intentions are good, and, and of course, I, I believe that's the most important thing. But it's not something that you can just take a class and learn to do, in my opinion. Um, it's it's a very special. Uh, I think you have to have compassion. You have to have empathy, but you also have to really meditate and go and go further. Um, but like I said, it's kind of a long uh, discussion for me, and it's a very I'm very passionate about this,
1: so um,
2: it does mean a lot to me. So I'm glad that I'm able to help the people that I've been able to help and, and help yes. their animals.
1: So Linda, how do we find you? Website, social media? Where are you?
2: Um, my website is um, it's linda g fisher dot com and it's uh, no c in the fisher it's just f i s h e r.
1: Okay, and we'll put that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. dot And Linda, this has been such a joy. You know, it's it's funny to see someone in a film and then get to talk to them. So it's a little bit like meeting a movie star. Okay. And in <laughs> okay. your case, it's more like a soul star. So it's really been wonderful to, to listen to you, and I would love to talk to you further and maybe see if uh, you could talk to the dog and the parrot who are part of my life. That would be such a pleasure. Well, I would
2: love to, and thank you so much. I feel the same about you, and and especially all those who are who are living a compassionate lifestyle and who love and truly embrace, you know, compassion. It's, it's, you know, it's what keeps us all going, right?
0: It
1: absolutely is. And I think you're speaking to a lot of them today. (laughs) We've got vegans and we've got people from unity who are looking into, hmm, maybe this vegan thing has something to it. If you're thinking that, yes yes it does have something to it so okay. thank you so much linda yeah. g fisher you can find her at lindagfisher.com and see her in a prayer for compassion and we will be back right after this
2: thank you bye-bye
1: thanks linda
0: Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World
3: Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming... We invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support.
4: Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Eric Butterworth, taken from the live lecture, A Course in Practical Metaphysics.
0: Healing is the experience in our life of coming out of the darkness into the light, getting out of the confusion of human consciousness into the allness, which is always present, but the allness of infinite life is present even within the illness. So God is not a healer. He doesn't look down upon you and say, well, you're sick, but you're a good person and I like you very much, so I'm going to take this illness away from you. God doesn't take illness away from anybody, nor does God put illness into anyone, which belies a lot of traditional religious thought, too. We talk about, well, suffered to be so, it's God's will, and I guess it's my place to accept it. The will of God must always be the ceaseless longing of the Creator to express itself in that which has created. So it's a constancy, it's a force, which is ever-seeking to press itself out into visibility as life, as wholeness, as success.
4: To find out more about Eric Butterworth, visit unity.org.
0: Know yourself as divine. Stations of the Cosmic Christ. A new book from Matthew Fox and Bishop Mark Andrus introduce a spiritual practice designed to help you realize the divine within. Combining prayer and an interpretation of the Stations of the Cross, featuring beautiful imagery, you will be led on a process of transformation. This book will help you discover the most caring, courageous, and compassionate parts of yourself. Get your copy today at Amazon.com or Unity.org
3: shop. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing. Another is about finding peace in troubled times. And the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children, so families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to Unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday.
0: Find the truth within yourself that heals, reveals, guides, and transforms. Tune in to Rev. Galen McDowell every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms. Take a deep dive into the practical aspects of new thought teaching, starting with forgiveness, spiritual healing, prosperity, and more. Rev. McDowell welcomes some amazing guests, and topics can range from reincarnation to the Bible to science. Big plans to join the show here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment, 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
1: Hey, everybody, I know you just heard some announcements from the good people at Unity, and I've got some announcements too that I hope will be important and wonderful for at least some of you. Oh, here's one for everybody. I'm so excited. Bruce Friedrich, who has been on this program a couple of times, and I'll put links to those past shows on the show notes this week. Bruce Friedrich is an amazing gentleman. He was with PETA for many years. He was in human rights activism before that. And now he's at the helm of uh, the Good Food Institute. And this very day, March 13th, 2019, he is featured in the New York Times. Great big article, great big picture. It's called, This Animal Activist Used to Get in Your Face, Now he's going after your palate. So congratulations to Bruce and do have a look at that. And something else you might want to read is this week's blog post at MainStreetVegan.net. It's called Veganize Your Vacation, Beat Those Winter Blues by Eliza Stone. She is a master vegan lifestyle coach and educator certified by Main Street Vegan Academy. And if you're somebody who likes to travel or wants to travel, she has got some fabulous ideas. Also, if you happen to be in the Great Big Apple I am teaching a class every Tuesday evening through April 23rd. It's called Go Veg for Lent. This was brought about because of our partnership with um, Million Dollar Vegan, the people who were trying to get uh, Pope Francis to go vegan for Lent. Lent has already started. They're still talking uh, with the Vatican But our class is saying, well, it doesn't matter what anybody else does, whether it's a person of power or just the next door neighbor, we can go vegan for now and forever. So this is a really fun class offered through Unity of New York, and it's got cookbook giveaways and free literature and lots of fun food. And you can come if you don't do Lent. You can come if you're vegan. You can come if you're just kind of looking at vegan. It is completely a no-judgment zone. So I will put that information on the show notes as well. Or you can just check out Unity Church of New York and um, go to classes, and it'll be there. And last thing, Washington, D.C. area, Greenbelt, Maryland. There will be a screening of A Prayer for Compassion on March 24th. That's a Sunday. And I will be there doing a Q&A. This is something offered through the Veg Society of D.C., so you can check that out. And again, the information will be at MainStreetVegan.net on those show notes. Now, without further ado, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce you to somebody that I've admired for a long time, And an organization that I've admired for a long time. The organization is Jewish Veg, and its mission is to encourage and help Jews to embrace a plant-based diet as an expression of the Jewish values of compassion for animals, concern for health, and care for the environment. And our guest is Jeffrey Spitz-Cohan, Executive Director. He came to Jewish Veg after successful careers in journalism and Jewish communal service. He's been vegetarian since 2007 vegan since 2010, a master's degree in public management from Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Jeffrey Cohan.
4: Thank you, Victoria. Well, great it's... to be here and great seeing you at the world premiere of Kimbash. Yes. I how... of last week.
1: Yeah, that world premiere was really something. It, right. really it amazing felt like a total year. red carpet moment.
4: Yeah, 500 people, there. incredible.
1: Yeah, it was pretty wonderful. And and you and Jewish Veg have been so instrumental in that. So thank you for your kind words and, and your great support. So let's talk first a little bit, Jeffrey, about you personally. You were always a nice Jewish boy, but not necessarily a nice <laughs> vegan Jewish boy or man. So how did that come about?
4: Well, it happened, as you said, in 2007. Um, the first um seed that was one was by a rabbi, and then class I was taking, who said, and it seemed like a non sequitur, you know, eating meat is not the preferred way to go in Judaism. I sort of registered that in the back of my mind, but then one day in synagogue, um, the the creation story was being read, Genesis one twenty nine. And when you you see that verse in the very first chapter of Genesis, the first conversation between God and human beings, God says, eat the plants and only the plants. And at that exact moment, my wife and I looked at each other and said, it looks like we're supposed to be vegetarians. And well, that's when it all began.
1: That's that's so cool. I think so many people discover veganism somewhere out in the secular world, and then they bring it back into their religious lives. So it's very cool that it came to you the other way.
4: Yes, and lots of um, you know, prominent rabbis are vegetarian or vegan because of what the Torah says.
1: Yes. Well, in the film, you speak eloquently to this concept of dominion that comes up in Genesis and is a bone of contention for Jews and Christians often. So uh, what's your take on dominion?
4: Right, so just so you know, this is not my take. This is the, um, I would say is the um, conventional take on what this actually means. The first thing is it comes up in Genesis 126 is where that dominion verse is. And it's part of the exact same conversation where God says, just eat the plants. So there's no question dominion did not give us license to kill animals for food. There's no debate about that in the rabbinic tradition. The second thing is, it's part of the exact same verse, 126, where we're told we're made in God's image. So we're supposed to be exercising dominion the way that God cares for people, and that's with mercy and compassion. That's another point at which there is no debate among rabbis about what that means. So the, the, the dominion verse, as I say in the film, is the most misunderstood verse in the entire Bible. And people take it to mean the exact opposite of what it really was intended to mean.
1: I love it, and I love how you explain it. Now, something else in the Jewish Bible that I don't think came up in a prayer for compassion, but I think about it a lot because it's this beautiful vision that I want to hold for this earth and even for my own life in the short time that I have, and that's the Isaiah prophecy. Can you talk a little bit about Isaiah and what he was getting to?
4: Right, so thank you for mentioning that because in the book of Isaiah— It talks about um, a little bit about what the messianic age will look like. There's not much in the Jewish tradition about what the messianic age will look like. But what we do know primarily comes from the book of Isaiah. So it's in that book where we see the iconic verse about the lion laying down with the lamb and eating straw like the ox. So we see even the carnivorous animals will no longer be carnivorous. And what's so interesting in that same section of the book of Isaiah it says this is the case because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord which harkens back to Genesis 129, which was the mandate to just eat plants. So what's and- interesting when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, People and animals
1: alike will be doing what God wants us to do, all along. Oh, that's beautiful. You've already said a couple of things, Jeffrey, that I want to tweet. <laughs> <laughs> when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, people and animals will be doing what God wants. That that is beautiful. So Jeffrey, you also, because you do know Hebrew, which is such a wonderful thing for understanding the Bible. You say that when God gave Adam and Eve this diet, or I guess gave all people in future generations this plan for what humans were supposed to eat, he didn't just say it was good. What did he say?
4: He actually said it was very good. That's so interesting because in the first six days of creation, God creates everything and says, yeah, it's good, it's good. But then once we get um, the instructions in Genesis 129 to eat a plant-based diet, it is then that God says, Tov Ma'od in Hebrew. Very good.
1: That's so great. And I think a lot of people, even people who study the Bible, they kind of skim over some of this. And when you say to people, Eden was vegan, they kind of look at you funny. But in Eden, the animals and the people. And, and, you know, I'm speaking of this as if it's literal truth. And I understand that that most people nowadays, and I'll come clean and say, I myself don't really believe the literal, you know, seven days created the world and all that. But it's this powerful, powerful story that I believe has a lot of truth in it. Truth with a capital T, despite what the small f facts might have been. And. The idea that Eden was vegan, that this perfect state in the mind of God was without killing, harming, suffering. I mean, that sets the bar pretty high.
4: Mm -hmm. Of course, these instructions weren't intended just for the Garden of Eden. It was intended for life outside the Garden, which is why for the first thousand years of the biblical story, The odd edict to just eat the plants was in effect, and it wasn't lifted or modified until after the flood in Noah's Ark.
1: And I've also read that all of these stories of of the people who lived these incredibly long lives, that was all before the flood and before we started eating meat. Right, yes. Interesting, interesting connections. So, Jeffrey, what happened? <laughs> Tell us how in the whole world, you know, in, in Judaism and in religions that grew from Judaism and in all the rest of the world, most people are eating animals and animal products. Why? Right.
4: So here's, um, here's where it went astray. After the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem, this was in 70 A.D., There was actually a debate, and it is recorded among the leading rabbis of that time. And the debate was, okay, there's no temple, there's no place to do the sacrifice, so should there be any consumption of meat whatsoever? And there was a group of influential rabbis who said, of course not, because the only place you were supposed to ever kill an animal was in connection with this religious worship at the temple no temple, no meat. However um, because uh, and when you think about this you can sort of understand it because the destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans was so traumatic for the Jewish people, there were other rabbis who said, well, we can't take meat away from them. We'll allow them to eat some meat at home because it will remind them of the temple. And that did prevail.
1: Isn't that fascinating? And yeah, how but about
4: unfortunately, things have gotten out of control since
1: then. Yes. So nowadays, let's bring it fast forward to 2019. I hear from some Jewish friends who say it's so difficult because of the traditional aspects, both religious aspects. You can talk about this. I believe it's the shank bone at Passover mm-hmm. and also just cultural. You know, we think of of. Jewish traditional foods, uh, you know, lox and bagels. So help us out, both religiously and culturally. Uh, why should Jews be vegan and how can we make it easy?
4: Well, because if you um, go to our website, org and you watch the rabbinic statement video, this was a video that where some of the rabbis who signed a statement saying that all Jews should transition to plant-based diets. Some of these rabbis are interviewed. One of the more prominent um, rabbis you see in that video, Rabbi David Wolpe of Los Angeles, says, in reality, there's no such thing as Jewish food, because Jewish food just relates to the culture that the Jews were living in at any given time. So, but yes, traditionally, there is some, some things that are considered Jewish food. So if you go to our website, there's vegan versions of almost all of them, including lox and bagels. You Ooh. can make them with carrots.
1: That's great. I love it. And and how about Passover? Tell us how to do a vegan Passover.
4: Right. So if you go to our website and search on Passover, you'll see um, more than a dozen free recipes and a cookbook you can buy with forty more recipes. Or um, a Passover Seder, it's interesting because the Seder is a Jewish shelter that's practiced at home around a ritual meal. And in the center of the table is a Seder plate. There's traditionally six objects on the plate, including, as you mentioned, the shank bone. But of those six objects, four are plants, and the two that sometimes come from animals are not part of the Seder itself. They're just symbolic, unlike the plants. So you can replace them according to Jewish law because they're purely symbolic in nature. They, uh, they don't play a function in the Seder itself. So I just for the shank and this goes back about 1,500 years, you can use a beat because a beat has red juice and symbolizes the same thing as a shank
1: that's wonderful. So jewishveg.org is the website, and to get the Seder information in particular, jewishveg.org slash Right.
4: Yeah, wonderful. So that's um, you know, what you're referring to, Victoria. We're doing five vegan saters across the country. Um, we wish we could do more, and next year hopefully we will, but we're doing five this year. And you can RSVP now at that site, right, jewishveg.org slash and you can see all five of them and see which one is closest to you.
1: Do you know what cities those are off the top yes, of your I head? Yes, I
4: do. New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle.
1: Wow, that's great.
4: Right. And next year, hopefully, we'll be in the middle of America, too.
1: Yeah, that'll be wonderful. So, are, are are only Jews invited to these, or Definitely can
4: not, No, I know anybody can come, and we encourage oh, people, even if they've never been to a Passover seder, this would be a great first one to attend.
1: Wow. Well, I'm signing up. I'm letting you know that in advance, that'll be wonderful.
4: Okay. So, are.
1: talk to us a little bit about how people who are in uh, very religious Jewish communities can adapt veganism and find acceptance there. Uh, a gentleman called me about coming to the um, the the premiere the other night, who is in this situation. His son is in a yeshiva, and and is getting some ideas that there, that Judy that um, veganism is somehow un-Jewish. And what was so interesting to me was that within the hour, I had another call from a woman who said that she's an evangelical Christian and people in her church are telling her that veganism is unchristian. And it's, it's just like, it's so hard to understand, you know, where this comes from. So help us out.
4: Well, yeah, it's so unfortunate because um, the reality is, um, well, some people might say, what do you say? There is no rabbi, and if anyone knows of anyone, please send them forward. There is no rabbi who will debate Jewish veg on these issues because we're on a very firm Torah foundation. There's no doubt about it. So um, anyone who says otherwise, it's based on either a very incomplete or partial reading of the Torah and our tradition, or it's just completely mistaken.
1: So what about kosher meat and and other kosher foods. I think right, the argument the often way, yes. comes up that yep. that's what Orthodox Jews or very religious Jews are supposed to do.
4: Right. So, um, kosher meat was intended as a restriction, a difficult restriction on the consumption of meat, which was supposed to make consuming meat difficult to do. Unfortunately, a kosher meat industry has emerged in the past 50 to 100 years, which has made it much easier than anyone ever envisioned. The thing about kosher meat, which I also talked about at the panel discussion after last week's world premiere, is that no kosher meat company, big or small, raises its own animals. They purchase the animals from the same factory farming system that produces meat for Oscar Mayer, Tyson Chicken, I could go on and on. There is no distinction in the way the animals are treated up until the point they get to the slaughterhouse. So most people don't realize this, they think kosher meat must be by its very nature more humane. But for basically the entirety of the animal's life, they're raised in the cruel systems that are used today in modern animal agriculture.
1: So this is why
4: um, Rabbi David Rosen is also on a rabbinic statement video. He's the former chief rabbi of Ireland. He's an orthodox rabbi. He says, veganism is a new cash root or kosher. And any other type of cash root is highly problematic. Because if the Jewish mandate to treat animals with compassion, known as zar if that mandate is being violated in the way the animal is raised, it doesn't matter what happens at the slaughterhouse because you can't have a mitzvah, a good deed, if you want to call kosher's slaughter even a mitzvah. It cannot be enabled by a sin, which is the way the animals are treated before they get there.
1: Wow. So let's talk a little bit about Israel, which is the most vegan friendly country on Earth, the most vegans per capita of any nation. Why? And uh, tell us some of the exciting things going on there.
4: No, it's so amazing. There's such a robust animal rights movement in Israel. It's um, we bring Israel as an organization to the United States to help. Um, educate Jews and inspire Jews to follow the lead of what's happening in Israel. The thing about Israel, it's um, there's several factors that have gone into making it the most vegan friendly country. The first is, um, and this is in no particular order, the first is that the Mediterranean diet, which is what the typical person in Israel consumes, was much closer to a vegan diet than the standard American diet. The second thing is, it's a small country. It's about the size of New Jersey. That's how small it is. And virtually everybody is on social media. So ideas travel very quickly, and this one really spread like wildfire. And, you know, this is also a country where traditional, we're not traditionally, where people typically eat even salad for breakfast. So it's just a vegan diet fit very well into the Israeli culture.
1: Wow. Well, that is the one place on earth that I must go while I'm still living in this body. So um, (laughs) from my mouth to God's ears, maybe with uh, a prayer for compassion, I can get over there because it's been a great desire for a long time. And now that it's so vegan, even more so.
4: Yep. And the movie is already screened in Israel at least once.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and we hope to do a whole tour with it. So I know that we've already told people to go to the website, jewishveg.org, but there's one other thing that's over there that I'm just crazy about. And this is the infographic. So tell us about that, whether people are Jewish or, or Christian or wherever they come down on the religion thing, this infographic rocks.
4: Right. Thank you, Victoria. So this is, I want to credit Karen Ginsberg from our advisory council for um, producing this. She did the artwork you'll see on these. So our challenge was even people who get this have a difficult time explaining it to other people. So we said this would be perfect for an infographic. So we produced a four page infographic which explains the Torah ideal of a plant-based diet. It also applies to Christians as well, at least most of it. And you can um, go to our website, just search on the word infographic, they'll come right up, or you can click on the shop tab and you can order any number of them and we'll ship them to you um, shipping free in the United States. But they've been super popular because they really concisely explain the four page infographic everything I've talked about today
1: and more. Yeah, well they're excellent and thank you so much for donating those for the goodie bags for the VIP ticket holders at the premiere, because it's just so clear and so quick. So just in our last couple of minutes, Jeffrey, I know there is something else in the Jewish tradition and you say the Hebrew phrase very well about kindness to animals. That's actually Mm -hmm. part of the religion. Give us a little bit on that.
4: Right. It was so ironic um, when you were on a podcast recently, Moses said, Well, the Jewish religion is a religion that emphasizes animal compassion the most. Um, it actually hit me like a sledgehammer because, truthfully, Judaism should be, and we're trying to make it that religion. Because the, the Torah, and this is the five books of Moses that Jews and Christians share is full of verses that um, describe how we're supposed to treat animals and it's with very careful compassion and sensitivity not just to their physical needs but even to their emotional needs. And these are known collectively as sar hayin, which means the prevention of animal suffering and this is understood in Judaism as not just a goal or an objective but as an absolute Torah mandate
1: that's beautiful. And I think we should all take that as a mandate. There's also someone in the film who says that it it is considered, I don't know if you say sin in Judaism, but a really bad thing to cause the extinction of a species. And, and that's going on as well. So Thank you so much for all you do at Jewish Veg, for all you do as an individual. It's such an honor to be part of this film with you and an honor to be part of this movement with you. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Uh, thanks,
4: Victoria, for making this important film. I hope you get chance to <laughs> Bless see Bless
1: you. Everybody, next week. We're going to have someone from the very young generation and someone from a later generation inspiring us, Genesis Butler, the 12-year-old who wrote the letter to the Pope to get him to try to go vegan for Lent, and Ruth Heidrich, who's in her 80s and one of the world's 10 fittest women. Thank you all for listening today. God bless you. Eat your veggies.
0: Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience.